Heavenly Father, thank you so much for looking across history and seeing us and loving us when we weren't looking for you. In fact, we were opposed to you by our choices and our disposition. We were enemies to you. And you reconciled us through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of your son. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, without any further ado, let me introduce to you Pastor DJ McMoyle. He and his wife Kristen have been here all week with us. If you're, if you're anxious about having children because you're not sure how babies are going to behave, you're not sure you can cope, make sure that you meet their one-year-old son, Asher, before they leave town because he is an exemplary child. <laughs> he has not crabbed or cried. That's everybody else, but not, not, not Asher. Uh, DJ has been a, a youth pastor for three years in a suburb of, of Minneapolis. He and his wife are both graduates of Moody Bible Institute, and this morning we have the blessing of hearing him open the word to us. Would you help me welcome Pastor DJ? Thanks, Bruce. I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. Just ask that you open your Bibles right away to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a role we'll be spending. I, I thought um, I could tell you some stuff about myself, but on the off chance that this is the only time I ever preached to you, um, you guys know something I don't if you're laughing. Um, on the off chance that this is the only time I preached to you, then I thought the most useless thing I could do is stand up here and talk about myself. And so we'll, we'll have time for that later, hopefully. Um, but I, I think we'll just focus on what 2 Corinthians 3 has to say to us this morning. So as you're turning there, we're going to start in verse 12. Um, and we're going to talk about glory and power like we just sang about. And I think it's going to be awesome. I'm very excited to share it with you. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18 says this. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. I love that. That's great. What a great way to start Sunday. In the 1700s, there were two men named John Leonard Dobear and David Nitschman who were Christians, and they heard about an island. A, a man, a rich man, owned an island where he held about 3,000 slaves as prisoners, and they worked on the island for him. And the two men realized that because these people were born, raised, worked, and died on this island, that if no one went to them, they would never hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And so John Leonard Dobear and David Nitschman decided that they were going to go to find the 3,000 people on the island that had never heard the name of Jesus Christ to share the gospel with them. The problem with that was um, it definitely wasn't a, a vacation destination. It was difficult to get to. 
It was an island full of slaves. And so the plan that they set for themselves was to sell themselves into slavery so that they could reach the 3,000 people on this island. Um, Mom and dad weren't excited about that. Brother and sister thought they were insane. Their friends told them, lots of people here that need to hear the gospel, but these two men decided that it was these 3,000 slaves that needed to hear about Jesus. And so they did. They sold themselves into slavery. And as they got on the boat to go to the island, the first outsiders ever to enter it, the story goes that they stood on, on the boat, and as their friends and family watched them leave from the pier, the two men put their hands up in the air, and they said, May the Lord, who is worthy, receive the reward of his suffering. And I want to talk to you about the kind of glory that makes two young men sell their lives for the sake of the gospel and the suffering that they were seeking to reward Jesus for. I think that's an incredible story because who would do that? No one ever heard from them again. They were never seen. They never made it back. No one knows the fruit of their labor. No one knows if they even reached the island. It wasn't a publicity stunt. There was nothing to be gained except for a heart for 3,000 people who would never hear the name of Jesus and an urgency to go. I think that's incredible. There were um, a lot of things that ran through my mind as I prepared a message for a church that I've never been to and a state that I've never been to and the people that I don't know anything about. Um, <laughs> we got to ride around with Pastor Jim yesterday and uh, even, even just so... We can get it out of the way, right? Me and Kristen are from Minnesota. It's, it's cold there right now. Um, I, had to, I had to wipe the dust off of this T-shirt just to enjoy the weather. That, so we get um, onto the plane in, it must have been 20 degrees when we left Minneapolis. Is, um, and we, I mean, we're, we're not wearing winter coats at 20. It has to get to 15 or 10 for me to get out a big winter coat. But we get on the plane. Uh, we, we ride through, Asher was incredible on the plane, and we get off, and as we, as we step out, it was like, it must be like what entering the gates of heaven is going to be like, because we get off through the door, and it's just, we feel the warmth, and we see something really bright, not sure what it was, but we look up, and we squint at the sun, I think, I'm not a scientist, but we... We're so blown away at what we, and so we, we get out and we look through the window and we see the mountains. We don't have those. We have we, what we call mountains in Minnesota. We live in Maple Grove, and so there's, there's these big dirt piles that they keep for construction. They haven't done anything with them for 10 years. We call that Mount Maple Grove. That's about as close as we, and they do get covered with snow, but so does everything else, so I don't think it's the same thing. We um, were taken by the view. Um, I don't know if, you, if you've been here for a long time. I hope you're still amazed at where you live. We got to ride around with Pastor Jim yesterday and see the ocean and try to put, <laughs> try to put Asher in the ocean. Not a fan at the moment. He'll get there. We drove to see the, the top of the world and looked around and, and gazed out at it. It was incredible. And I wonder, um, I wonder... You look out at the vastness of the Pacific Ocean and the, the incredible creation of the mountains, and um, I, I, I could have been up there for hours. 
I really could have been. Maybe not. I'm, I am a millennial, but it was, it was incredible. And it got me thinking about it because I knew what I was going to preach about. I only wrote most of the sermon last night. The rest of it was prepared beforehand. I wonder when the last time that I gazed at the glory of the Lord the same way that we looked off the edge of that cliff yesterday, to gaze at him and to see his glory in a new, incredible way. Because eventually, eventually, looking out at the ocean would get tiring. Eventually you would have seen all that you can see looking over the top of a mountain, but we can spend a lifetime gazing into the glory of God and not have even exhausted the surface of what there is to enjoy. My goal for you this morning is to remind you to keep gazing, to behold the glory of the Lord and to let it change you. The passage Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, it's a much friendlier letter than the first go-around. It seems like he got it out of his system And so now he wants to remind them of some incredible things, the first reasons that they are in the church in the first place. And we need that sometimes, don't we? We, Some of us have been here for a while. Some of us have been here for a while, while, right? But um, people don't stick around places in Minnesota the same way you guys do. They're telling me people have been at this church for 30, 40 years. That that doesn't happen in Minnesota. I don't know if it's the weather or the passive aggressiveness or what it is, but... People are bouncing left and right all over the place. Um, But we need little reminders of, of, um, just like Paul thought the Corinthians needed. And so he's sharing with them again the same message that they once heard, but needed it proclaimed to them again, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's for Christians too. It's for non-Christians and it's for Christians. And he says in verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Which would make you wonder if, if I just airlifted you into the passage right there. What, what is the hope? What are we so hopeful about? And, and, and Paul has been talking about this new covenant that we're a part of in Jesus Christ compared to the old covenant that the Israelites were a part of in the Old Testament. And he's saying that our covenant is so much better that we have this incredible hope and it creates such a boldness that two young men would leave their families and friends and sell themselves into slavery for it. It's that kind of hope. It's that kind of boldness. And that's what he's saying that we have. And he's saying it's not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You guys know that story, I'm sure. But when Moses would come down from Mount Sinai after his encounters with the, with the God of creation, his face would glow, radiating the glory of God. And it scared the Israelites so much that he had to put a veil over his face because they could not look upon it. And he was... Uh, embarrassed at, at how they reacted to him. And so he would veil his face and he would cover it up. But Paul says, we're not like Moses because here's, here's what the people were like back then. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Incredible. That's the moment that we live in. We we live past the but in verse 16. 
when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. But I just want to help you really get a clear understanding of the glory of even just that. Uh, because there were times, and, and you can see it as you read through the Gospels, um, you can see Pharisees and Israelites and Jewish people stuck in that old covenant of following rules for the sake of rules, moralistic obedience, things that were um, really an end to themselves. Let me behave this way so that I can behave this way, so that you can be impressed with the way that I behave. Now, it was going on back then. It probably sounds familiar to you right now because I think that that's going on in some churches still today. Some people are walking around proudly with a veil covering their faces when Paul says that it's been lifted from us, but we know better. We know better. When Moses read the law, the Israelites heard it, the Israelites rejoiced at it, and then the Israelites ignored it, and it became this cycle in the Old Testament of I. Uh, Uh, worshiping the Lord and falling and repenting and worshiping the Lord and falling and repenting and worshiping the Lord and falling and repenting. And um, when I first started to read those stories when I became a Christian, um, I I brought it to my youth pastor because I'm like, are these supposed to be the heroes of the story? Like, these are God's chosen people that can't get it right for 10 days when he's up on a mountain. He comes down there worshiping a golden calf. Like, what is wrong with these people? He just opened up the sea for them. As a newly saved Christian, I'm rejoicing if he opens up a can of pickles for me. Like it's there, and I'm so confused at the inconsistency in their faith. And my youth pastor was like, I totally understand what you're saying, but you just need to wait a little bit longer so that you can sympathize with them. I was like, that was a shot, right? But it, yeah, it didn't take long. I was 14. It didn't take long at all. And I, I remember when I came back to her, I was like, yup. I get it. What do we do now? What do, what do I do now that I've worshipped the golden calf? And she explained to me the difference between us and them. Because they had to go through quite a process. Sacrifice, cleansing, repentance, forgiveness by the high priest, entering into the holy holies on their behalf. She told me, Oh, you sinned before God? Now you get to go to him, confess it, trust that he's faithful to forgive it, and move on. I thought when I was a young Christian that I needed to pay the price for sin that Jesus had already paid for. I thought that I needed a a time of punishment before I could go to him. My youth pastor told me, he paid that, you don't have to. But that's the glory that we live in, and that's the glory that the Israelites didn't have, so that when Moses read the law, it was a condemning law. The point of the law from Moses was to show the gap between God and the people that were worshiping him. And, and it does the same thing for us. It's the same illustration for us. But the incredible thing is as Paul talks, he, he reminds us that we're not stuck in that. Because he says... Only through Christ is it taken away. And that's not the only language. If you guys have ever opened a single page in the New Testament, that's not the only language where he says only through Christ. What about Ephesians 2, 8, 9? For it is by grace you have been saved, not of works so that no one can boast. We live in an incredible time. 
And I'm just reminding you of some of the simple pieces of that because I think sometimes, no matter how long you've been a Christian, we need a reminder of the incredible grace that we live in so that we can be reminded to gaze into the glory of the God who saved us from this law, from this veil, the Jesus who lifted that from our face. We need to remember to gaze into that. And so, as I read the passage, I'm, I'm sure you can just, just feel what I feel and be stirred up by the incredible passion that Paul's writing with. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. I've met Christians who fit into that category, who know the hope that they have in Jesus Christ and are very bold because of it. I've met Christians who do not fit into that category, and I've been that Christian, and it's confusing. It's confusing. If you were, did you guys know, so obviously I'm a youth pastor. Um, did you know that most of the disciples were probably teenagers historically? I'll tell you why I think that and why a lot of people think that. There's a story um, where Peter asked Jesus a question about their responsibility to pay their taxes because they were mostly self-employed. So his question was, what's our responsibility as a follower of you? And Jesus explains to him that God will provide, but you have to pay it still. So he walks over and he pulls out a coin from the mouth of a fish. And he gets one for himself and he gets one for Peter. And they go and they pay their temple tax. Now the only people that had to pay the temple tax in Israel were people of the age of 20 or older. Okay, so it, unless they just left out the fact that everyone else had to pay their taxes, it looks like from that story that Peter was the only disciple above the age of 20. He was also, uh, I believe, the only married disciple at the time. And if you need some circumstantial evidence, in, uh, in or around John chapter 5 or 6, um, when Jesus uh, preaches all these incredible messages and does these amazing works of healings, and then he turns to the disciples and he says, what do you think? They're like, man, we're hungry. And that leads to the feeding of the 5,000. But if that doesn't sound like teenagers, you're not reading the Bible right. I... <laughs> Young men who committed their lives to follow Jesus. Do you think that when they saw Jesus walk on water that they lived the next day the same way? Absolutely not. And even more so, do you think that when they saw him nailed to a cross and then had breakfast with him five days later that they thought about the world the same way they did? No, of course not. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering why there are people sitting in churches all over the world who claim to have met Jesus but aren't different than before. I don't get it. It seems like an encounter with Jesus changes everything. And we need to just do a little bit of adjusting of our eyes so that as we look, as we get off the plane and we're used to the dark and the cold and we squint into the sun that is the glory of God, that we can see clearly how that squinting is supposed to change us and the way that we live. And so I just have three little points of application for you this morning. Um, if you're a note taker, this would be a great time to start because I'll finish ranting and it's about to get way more coherent than it's been. In 3.16, Paul says, and I, this is incredible, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And my note for you on that this morning is that's the moment that neglecting becomes projecting. There is a distinct difference 
in the way that Christians should go about their business in the world. There is a difference in who we are as a result of our encounter with Jesus and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be different. That's the point of the church. The word holy in itself means set apart. And so as Christians, there, there should be a, a distinction from the moment that we went from neglecting the Son of God and his message to uh, now we're over here and Jesus tells us that we are the light of the world. There should be a projecting of that joy, of that glory, of that power that we bring into the world as his vessels to bring the glory of God to people who wouldn't know it otherwise because they're not looking for it. He uses us to project his glory into this dark world. We are the light that he sends into the darkness. That makes us different than other people. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our life makes us different than other people. Not better. Who's made that mistake before? <laughs> yeah. I've, I have for sure. Looking at people's lifestyles and habits and situations and just thinking, well, if they need me. <laughs> I would not invite them to know what I think about throughout the day as I stand in judgment of them. Not better, but different, but different. And I think Jesus made that very, very, very clear and I, and I think the New Testament does it on its own. In fact, I'd like to read you uh, one of my favorite and most challenging passages in the entire New Testament is Romans 12, 9 through 21. I'm going to read it all for you. In Romans 12, it says, uh, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My, my Bible titles that the marks of a true Christian. And I, I, can't, I can't get past let love be genuine without having to pause and ask God, is that the work that you're doing in me? Do I genuinely love people the way that you love people? And if I get past that one, then I have a long list to work through of the things that Jesus wants to do in me as he changes me. And so we are supposed to be different. Now the mistake that I see a lot with that call to holiness, especially in dealing with parents as a youth pastor, is that we can get so concerned in the way that our behavior looks to people that it becomes less of a concern of the way that the Spirit is in us and more a concern about the way that we're behaving. 
And I know that if you're a parent, you understand what I'm talking about because um, me and Kristen had to have the talk even with, even with uh, a one-year-old. Before we got on the plane, we made a pact that if Asher had a really hard time on the plane, we weren't going to get mad at him because we wouldn't have been mad at him. We would have been embarrassed that we were the couple with the screaming baby on the plane and we weren't making any friends, right? Parents, I understand your desire and your concern for your kids to learn obedience and to act in a certain way. I do. It, it's, it's a very, very, very important part of what you do. It is not the most important part of what you do. Your primary role as a parent and your primary role as a Christian leader in any context that you're in is to show to your kid what Jesus looks like. Sometimes that is discipline. As a loving father disciplines his children, so is the justice of the Lord. But I know that I've seen parents react or overreact to their kids misbehaving or really, really misbehaving. And when it got down to the root of it, the concern wasn't for the salvation in the heart of their kid. Their concern was for the way that it was making the parent look. But what will people say, right? What do they think of us? What if they find out? What if this person finds out? What if, what if your coach finds out? I, man, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that, I actually would have made a decent salary in Minnesota. What, I mean, we have a distinctness for sure, but I, I sat across from a parent who um, her daughter did, I mean, she, she did something that we, neither of us ever would have expected her daughter to do. She was a really quiet girl who had been homeschooled most of her life and had just started doing some activities in public school. And over the summer, we found out that she had become smoking pot, like floored me. Couldn't have expected it. And I sat down with the mom before I sat down with the student. And I said, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? When she comes in, am I going to have to hold you back? Like, where are we at in the disciplinary process? How are you doing? And she started to talk, and I started to understand that the priorities were a little bit misplaced in mom. And that's a difficult situation, especially as a young pastor. Um, but I read her uh, this passage, actually. Um, we prayed. She handled it incredibly well. Parents and, and everyone, I would just beg you to remember that Christianity is not an advanced form of moralism. The Spirit changes us, and so we run toward that. There have been people over the course of history that no one can say a bad word about, and when they've died, they've gone to hell because they never knew Jesus. We cannot neglect the glory of the new covenant. And as we fail to do that, we will begin to project the glory of the Lord to the people around us. The Lord lifts that veil. It's his work, not ours. All right, verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is the moment that worry turns to worship. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I use worry as an example, uh, mostly because it also starts with a W, like worship. Um, but I think that I see all over the place Christians, Christians, 
living lives chained to their sin, not realizing that the presence of the Lord offers freedom. The big thing that I heard when I was a a Christian in high school, um, trying to invite kids to youth group and trying to invite them to Bible study and and, and, um, was, I, 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 I don't want to follow all those rules. Like, I can't, like, I, that's cool, man. Like, I'm glad that you have your thing, but, like, I, I got to do my thing, and, like, we're young, and there'll be plenty of time for that, and I, I can't tell you the amount of times I heard that. And what I didn't understand then, I wish that I could go back, but I, I just hadn't read the Bible enough, but it, I, I've seen people chained to their sin calling it freedom. Slaves to things that they don't even want to do anymore, but it's just a part of who they are. It's a part of their cycle. It's a part of their pattern. And we need to replace that chain with the freedom of the Spirit of the Lord. And I picked worry because I think that it's the culturally acceptable chain that even Christians are at risk of putting on themselves. When you read the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, it seems without really any room for interpretation, that he has promised us that we have nothing to worry about. He will provide. You have an enormous handbook of evidence of the God you worship, having never missed a promise, having never missed a step, and having never failed anyone We have all those thousands of years of evidence, and and then I still worry. I'm still up at night worrying. My concern is really that God is not able, God is not strong enough, He is not caring enough. I mean, really, what is the concern? When I worry, when, when, I, when I ignore the available freedom of the Spirit of the Lord and I chain myself to my worry and my concern, how will this turn out? What will my next job be? What's going to happen to the kids in my youth group? What's going to happen to Asher as he grows up? Will he know the Lord? Family concerns, school concerns, job concerns, financial concerns, legitimate, legitimate concerns. They are big or they wouldn't keep us up in the first place, but I think the thing that we miss is the freedom from it. Christians are voluntarily chaining themselves to worry and to sin and to concern and to anxiety, and it seems like Paul is saying where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You should change that worry into worship, because if think about it like this. The thing that you spend the most time thinking about This is from a song by a guy named Jimmy Needham called Clear the Stage. He says that anything that I spend all my time thinking about is an idol. Anything that I give all my love is an idol. Anything that consumes me is my idol. And so that thing that as you worry, you place on the altar to spend all your time and energy worrying about, that becomes the thing that you worship. I spend all my time worrying about my kids. I worship them. I spend all my time worrying about my job. That is my piece of worship. There's no freedom in that. 
because of the point that I'm going to make next, you can see that those things that we put on our, our altar to worship is the very thing that's going to pass away the same time we do. And we spend all of our time worrying about something temporary as if it was eternal. And Jesus says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Don't you see? Don't you see that you could be free? Turn that worry to worship. Find peace in the God of the new covenant as he offers it to you. The things aren't small. I get that. Neither is the God that you worship. He's strong. My last one for you, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Jesus did not save us to leave us where we are, to leave us in our worry and to leave us in our sin. When Jesus saved us, he says, look at me, behold me, and I will change you from one degree of glory to the next to be more like me. It won't be finished here, but we have a promise of something eternal coming and as we behold the glory of the Lord then that turns to becoming like Jesus and this is the the incredible truth that I have for you this morning is to just encourage you to continue to behold the glory of the Lord gaze into his word dig into the community of the church behold the glory of the Lord and you will become more like Jesus it's what he wants for you it's why he came. It's why he died. Listen to this. This is from the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There are... Um, <laughs> I'm... This is the kind of stuff that doesn't get you invited back, but there are some older people in this congregation. <laughs> Objectively true, right? I mean, you know. There are some older people in this congregation who people like me would do well to listen to, to believe how real it gets that the outer self is wasting away. I still think I can dunk a basketball. I can't, but um, I can still trick myself that I have loads of time here. Even though there's no promise of that, the outer self is wasting away. And yet, the promise is that that doesn't matter because the inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, stop, Paul, what are you talking about? This light, momentary affliction, you don't know my story, Paul. How dare you? Write this book 2,000 years ago. Try to talk to me about light momentary affliction. You didn't even have cell phones. <laughs> Paul doesn't know that my mom might be diagnosed with cancer. Paul doesn't know that my bank account's been on empty for four days and I'm just hoping to be able to fill my car up with gas to make it to work. Paul doesn't know that my 17-year-old sneaks out and I have no idea where he is every night. True. Should we look at Paul's resume, though? We want to talk about suffering? 
when I'm talking about a guy who was arrested, beaten, tortured, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake. Has anyone here been bitten by a snake for Jesus, except for Bruce? Paul knows suffering. And he says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, which means temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We look to the eternal for our hope, supposedly. But I think there's a big thing in American culture where we're looking to the temporary for that hope. Um, If I can get a nice enough place with a nice enough job, with a nice enough family, and I can be comfortable then I can worship at church on Sunday morning. Does anyone else find it difficult sometimes to lift their hand and worship when things are really hard at home? It's supposed to be the other way around. I knew a, I knew a guy at Moody, uh, one of our professors, who was so burdened with comfort that he became concerned uh, he, it, it was difficult for him to worship at chapel if things were going really well for him. I'm not wired like that, but more power to him. His concern was that he put comfort above holiness. And so it, he became concerned like that. But for me, a light momentary affliction preparing for me an eternal weight of glory is a difficult promise to hang on to, but it's so important that we do. Because if we don't hold on to that promise that, that this is light, that this is momentary in comparison to the glory that awaits us before Jesus Christ, then we will not chase that promise. We will make exceptions for that promise when something comfortable rears its head as an opportunity here at the expense of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We will choose comfort over Christ 100% of the time if we don't hold on to that promise. And so I'm asking you to adjust your eyes to the glory of God, to look again, to squint again into the blinding glory of his goodness, to examine in yourself, where have I become too comfortable? Where has it become too easy? Where have I lacked hope? Where have I chained myself to worry? Because I think that Paul seemed to think that it was worth it. There's a woman named Jill Briscoe who, the last time I heard her speak was 82 years old, still traveling around preaching the good news. She tells her testimony of a search for God that began for her when she was five years old, praying to the Lord in a homemade bomb shelter during World War II. The explosions went off around them and she prayed for peace. She didn't meet God, but she began to look. And it led her to her freshman year of college at Cambridge University where she fell extremely ill as, a, as an 18, 19-year-old woman, was hospitalized, was down in bed, 
and the nurse that was tending to her was a Christian. And the nurse walked in to tend her for the first time, and she looked at her charts, and she, she looks at Jill, and she goes, you know, you could die. <laughs> Bedside manner. I, I, Jill goes, thank you for that. Um, what's your name? Who are you? And the woman shares with her the gospel of Jesus Christ, and she says, I've been looking for that. Meets Jesus in that hospital bed. Lives a 64-year Christian life where she travels to every continent on this earth to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ with her husband, Stuart. Amazing couple. And the last time I heard her speak, when she was 82 years old, she stood before a crowd of college students and leaned into her pulpit after telling her testimony and telling the story of her ministry. And she looks us in the eye and she says, I'm here to tell you that it's all true. There are amazing testimonies of the work that the Lord has done from people in this room right now. If you are doubting the eternal promises of Jesus Christ, I suggest you go find them, talk to them, be encouraged by them. Because the things that we can see are transient. We're not promised another moment. And so there's an urgency to the way that we behold the glory of God. He invites us to act now. Let Jesus take your chains from you. Take up your cross and follow him. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for the the clarity of your word, and I just pray that we would reflect and let it sink in and change us. You would remind us of your good eternal promises that we would see your power at work, that you would lead us in your grace to trust you with our lives both here and for eternity. Thank you, Jesus, in your name, amen.